Mini MBA, how are you? Welcome to our first Q&A session. Uh, it is I, your virtual professor. I hope you're well. More importantly, I hope you're settling into a good rhythm. Yeah. I mean, if you take 100 mini MBAs, they're all doing it a different way, literally. Um, but I hope you found a rhythm that works for you. And, and the only thing I'd tell you, two things I would remind you. The optional readings are optional. Don't do all of them. They're not, you know, you don't have to. And second, try and get to the end of the each week having done the class and the core reading and you're done. The, the other stuff you can do later if you want, yeah? Um, and by now, you should have gone into that mode where you're like, okay, this week it's segmentation, whatever, and on we go, okay? So first two modules out of the way, orientation and research, they go together nicely. This is our Q&A, and as I mentioned in module one, the idea is as we go through each two-week period, you can at any point jump into the tile next to the two modules, bang in a question, and then I turn up the end of every two modules and essentially just answer all the questions. Now, I do it on a Friday. It is Friday the 22nd here, um, but I do it early, early uh, Australia time. The idea behind that then is we can get it up and onto the network as a pre-recorded thing. Now, many people say, well, why can't we have a live Q&A? We used to do live Q&As. They don't work as well. By the time everyone asks their questions, it takes like nine hours, right? Literally nine hours. So trust us, this is a better format. What it means as well is you, um, you, you know, although we'll drop this usually 10 a.m. every Friday or every other Friday, you don't have to be live for this, okay? You can plug your question in any time and then you can access your answers and then everyone else's answers anytime from Friday, 10 a.m. UK time. So, uh, and you don't have to watch it. You can listen to the podcast version as well. So it's available for you from that point onwards, but you don't feel like it's appointment. We don't want any scheduled appointments because it gets in the way of everyone's busy time. Okay. Um, ask questions about anything you like. I don't care. Uh, I don't prep the answers because I don't. It's more fun just to hit them live. Um... I try and get each session to be 60 minutes long or less because I think that's the right length. This first one might go a little bit longer, though I'll try and stick to 60. We soon It settles down. What we do is we divide you into what we call cohorts. You'll actually see in your web address you're in either you know, A, B, or C. And the reason we do that is just so we can correctly estimate the size of each group and calibrate it so we get about an hour's worth of Q&A. So what we've put B and C together for you guys for this course that's about the ideal number of people, I think about 500 people, which will give us what I think will be about the right width and length of questions. That's the only thing that's different, okay? It's just so we create a nice, um, what's the right word? A, a, a nice learning-sized Q&A. If I put the whole class into one group, it would. Be, I, I think it would go too long. It would go like three hours, okay? So with that introduction, I think we can get going. What do you think? Are you ready? Um, a bunch of questions. Let's start with Marta Trias. Hey, Marta. How do you apply market orientation in a B2B world? It seems much more obvious in a B2C space. No. Uh, obviously, there is an end consumer to satisfy. I see the point of considering all of them, your direct clients, businesses, and the end user. Let's take an example. Say I run a factory that makes fine material used to create car wheels. My customers are the wheel makers who buy from me to make wheels, which then get sold to car makers and finally end up in the hands of consumers. It gets pretty complex. So the big question is, should your market focus be more than the end user? It, this is a classic question, Marta, and I'm, I, I really should have just covered it in the module. 
but I'm glad you asked it. Um, yeah, it does get complex, but that doesn't mean that's not the job. In B2B, and to some degree B2C as well, if you're selling through supermarkets, whatever, here's you and here's your end user. Everyone in the chain, you need to understand, okay? If you really believe the bullshit, and it may be going a bit far, you act, if, even if you're selling wheels to a, you're selling metal to a wheel manufacturer, you want to understand the wheel consumer better than they do, so you have power over them. So in theory, it's everyone all the way down. In reality, in my experience, it's the most proximate customer, the one you sell to, and the final end user where probably is the, the, that's the most focus. But you're absolutely right. It's a classic question, and not even in B two B in all markets. Everyone down that channel from you, in theory, is a customer and in theory needs to be understood. And there is market power in understanding the end consumer of your your customer's consumer. Yeah. Giada, can you share any best practices of companies who successfully shifted from a product orientation to a market orientation? What would you say are the key steps? This question is going to come up a lot, so let's answer it once really well and then refer everyone back to Giada. So, <clears throat> two answers. I've included Rohit Deshpande. Rohit Deshpande is a very famous, very smart, very lovely Harvard professor who I remember about 30 years ago, he interviewed me for a professor's job at Harvard. And Harvard is very intimidating, but Rohit is far more. He's so nice and lovely, but so clever. Anyway, I've included a video with Professor Deshpande because he talks about the process of developing what he calls customer centricity. So the first thing, if you're interested in growing it, is look at Rohit's video. It's very, very good. Okay, it's an optional uh, resource. In my experience, there's a couple of ways this happens, okay? The first point I'd make to you is, I don't think you can all be Jeff Bezos. I don't think you can make the whole company market-oriented. Give up, okay? My challenge to you is, most marketing departments aren't market-oriented. That's where you need to focus, first up. Okay, so don't worry about the whole company. And, and, you know, as we said at the end of module one, some parts of the company should be product oriented. It's not a bad thing. Is is the marketing team market oriented? And then the second challenge, Giada, is can you use your data politically within the company? What I mean by that is we tend to get data and use it to build our strategies. The same data can be used to show the rest of the company. You, you don't know what you're talking about. That's not how they think. Yeah, in pricing, you know, you've set the price here. This is where, and we'll talk about this in the pricing module. This is where the customer would have paid. You've left all this money on the table. Scott Galloway talks a lot about um, the knowledge of the consumer is a marketer's superpower, and I, I think that's super true. Um, so I, I think stage one is uh, build the market orientation within the team, the marketing team. And then use the data to remind everyone else that we know the customer. Let us help you with that rather than trying to make everyone a marketer. That, that would be my general advice. Christian, when you say doing nothing is a response, when do you know when this is the right or wrong thing to do? Often we can perceive doing nothing as not being proactive. Do you have an example where this has been a success? A uh, good example. Um, where we decided to do nothing. Yes, yes, I'll give you an example. Um yeah, it's a strategic choice not to do something. And often it's the one we don't take because we feel like we have to do something. With Mini MBA, as an example, 
we constantly get feedback that um, you want to have social interactions with each other and have events. And we should organize an event in London where the mini MBA class can all come together and get to know each other. We've never done anything about that because of two things. One, my, my marketing manager refers to it as the, as the hotel pool. Everybody checks that there's a pool at the hotel and they never get in it, right? So people ask, do you do social interaction stuff? And we say no, and they go, mm. But we know that almost none of you will meet up. And the ones that do will do it organically for a beer in a smaller group. So that's an example of us, you know, doing nothing. I used to have a constant, you know, every brand I ever worked on in Australia, we, whenever we brought in an international marketing manager, they would always instantly say, you know, a, a, a good example would be, um, uh, uh, when I, I'm trying not to give away too much here. When we, um, when I used to work at Melbourne Business School, we got a series of deans from the universities of the world who'd come in, and because they're American or British, the first thing they'd say is, we need to be big in Sydney. And what none of them understood was that if you're big in Melbourne, you can't be big in Sydney. It's just one of those weird things about Australian markets, right? And so we, we, would, we would do nothing. We would not respond to that decision, Yeah. On mini, I'm sorry, I'm using all the academic examples, but on mini MBA, we don't go, we don't target America. Yeah, we we love having Americans on the course. Don't worry, Americans, we love that you're here. But the cost of acquisition for American marketers to do this course is literally ten times what it is to get a Dutch, German, Brazilian marketer. So we'd rather have. It's not that we don't love Americans; they're just not ten times more valuable or interesting to other people. So we do nothing about America. We don't go there. We we leave it. Um, it's too big and too expensive. And that's a choice. It's a strategic choice that I'm really rather proud of, much as I'd like us to be big in America because it's a huge market. Does that make sense? Deciding to do nothing is an important choice. Sam O'Brien, any tips on avoiding confirmation bias, especially working backwards? I run surveys and tests over the years, and I've noticed we're good at confirming the thing we thought we knew. Yeah, look, don't worry about this one, Sam. It looks like when you do backwards market research, you're kind of lining up your own your own approach it, it, it's way more uh it's way more discriminatory than that having done it a lot i'll give you a good example so i use that example where james and i did that research for his new diabetes company uh, and we don't really talk about this in the video james had pretty much decided he was going to he had this little pump the omni pump and he'd already got it positioned as being for young people that were mobile that just wanted to get on with life and forget about diabetes because his pump versus these big radios that were what the pumps looked like at the time just meant you could go out jogging and hanging out and going to nightclubs and stuff. That was pretty much where he was going. We did that backwards market research thing and I think he was lining it up a little bit and very quickly the research went, no, definitely not. You know, and we got some famous feedback, you know what I mean, that was like, you know, you, you know, this pump will allow you to forget about diabetes. And this one was like, well, I will die then. You don't forget about diabetes. You just, it's a pain in the ass. And I just want to reduce the pain in the assness of it. So backwards market research is, it looks from a superficial point of view, like it's going to be kind of, you're going to be smoking your own crack metaphorically. Uh, trust me, it really doesn't do that at all. You know, when you set up, backwards market research sets up a chart that says, take all the variables from the qual and run them all as correlations against preference. It doesn't matter if you have a favorite there, the data ain't going to play favorites. Do you know what I mean? And because the qual has, 
squared it up in terms of which variables we got. We, we got that from the market and the quant doesn't care. All your backward research process does is reveal what's going on in a way that you can't deny. So I, I know it seems like a concern. Trust me, it, it, it doesn't play out that way. Callum, in a tiny SME with four employees, which offers a multitude of diverse products and services, you have to wear lots of hats, which to my mind involve different orientations. Often they will be switching from an outlook of sales orientation to product orientation to purpose, depending on who they're talking to. Is this approach sustainable? If they sit under an umbrella of an overall marketing orientation, or should a customer-centric approach be taken across the board to ensure consistency? Uh, look, it's a great question, Callum. It really depends, mate. Um, there's nothing wrong with any of those orientations, first of all, right? Whether someone can truly... I don't believe salespeople have market orientation. They think they do. I think they have sales orientation. Product people occasionally, but very rarely, are able to get a market-oriented perspective. They're so into the product. That's not a bad thing, right? So whether you can multitask is a difficult one. I take your point that with four employees, you kind of have to. By the time you get to seven or eight, someone can do marketing and you can specialize. Uh, Meg, Thomas, you mentioned that organizations may have a myriad of orientations, sales, product, etc. Can you elaborate on this with some examples? Um, what could a marketing team do to encourage market orientation in those teams? So back to my earlier answer, Meg. Uh, so in a product development team, they will probably try and claim they're market oriented, but they're not. They're looking at it from a product point of view. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all, right? The pricing team ultimately don't feature marketers and are all about looking at competition, costs of goods, and profitability, right? I don't want to make those teams market-oriented. I mean, I do, but I don't want a sales force to become market-oriented. I want them to be sales-oriented, yeah? What I want from, from, and I'll give you a good example of that, right? Lots of salespeople I work are very, very, what's the right word, stalky around customers, yeah? Marketers would never keep ringing, keep ringing, keep ringing. We just go, she doesn't want me to ring her. Salespeople will just keep, keep, keep after them because that's what salespeople do. That's the right thing to do if you're sales oriented. It's not market oriented, yeah? So my point is let's not make the other parts of the function market oriented. Bezos is an exception. Your job, Meg, is to make sure the marketing team are market oriented and the products of that market orientation get into the different decision-making processes. I don't want to make the pricing team market-oriented, but what I want is someone from Meg Thomas's team to have pricing data fed into that pricing team. I don't think the product team are ever going to be market-oriented, but someone from Meg Thomas's team is going to be able to at least share with them, nobody cares about that shit, look at the survey. Yeah, For me, that's, that's what success would look like in the myriad. Lizego, hi Mark, I thought your observation that the problem with market orientation is that most companies think that they are was really good. Thanks. My question has to do with how you overcome that particular barrier, the overestimated assumption for market orientation. Do you have a perspective or process on how you've navigated getting past this point? Yeah, um, I'm a big fan of net promoter score for this very reason, Lizego. So there's a big debate about net promoter score at the moment, right? Again, the Ehrenberg Bass guys are all over it, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that the purported link between net promoter score and future business growth is legitimate. I think that was probably bullshit most of the time. We'll talk about it, but I don't think it's really true often. I don't think it matters. One of the great things about net promoter score is, to your question, it is a heartbreaking metric. Like the last class we taught of this course, we're a plus 70 MPS, right? 
make no mistake how hard we have worked to get to plus 70, yeah? And if we don't do a good job with you guys, it will plummet, plummet much lower, right? And if you don't know what net promoter score is, we're going to cover it in a couple of weeks, don't worry. Things like net promoter score enable us to show a company, you know, the, 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 my longer answer, let's say, is the data brings you back down to reality. So market orientation creates data. You then have to take that data and go back to the non-market oriented people and go, hey, your brand awareness is 11%, yeah? Stuff like that. Um, th that's where it begins. And then as a seasoned marketer, you just have it in you. I was working with a big retailer last week who I love, but they've started to believe that they're the consumer champion and they're a much loved part of the family and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, hey, 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 hey. If we shut this all down next week, nobody would care. And they're like, what are you talking about? We're one of the most loved retailers in the country. And I'm like, mm-hmm. And if we shut this down, nobody would care. Yeah, no, nobody would, they would just move on, right? You, you can't lose that. People don't really care that much about brands, as we said. So I think it's the data that needs to be used to bring people back down again. Debbie, I pay to do marketing. Oh, I'm paid to do marketing in a large global B2B organization. How can I influence market orientation and do proper research in a company where I don't have any real influence? Well, Debbie, that's great. It's beautifully put, and it's a very common question. Back to my earlier point. I, I don't think you can, uh, you can create market orientation in the rest of the company. I mean, you can if you're Jeff Bezos. Your job is to practice market orientation, as we said a moment ago, supply that information in, in the form of pricing data, brand perceptions, funnel data to the rest of the operation. Or in a decision go, you shouldn't do that because of X, let me show you, right? They don't need to practice it, they just need to get what you've got, right? The other thing I would tell you, and I'm not, God knows I'm not selling to you, Debbie, because you've only just started one course, it's very interesting. We launched the we're launching the mini MBA management next week, right? And I've just watched all. We it's not me. It's like other professors from other top business schools, each teaching like strategy, negotiations, decision making, all that. The area where I had the most ahas from all the different professors was this idea of of managing up, and the idea of how do you get influence in decision making in negotiations when you don't have direct control down. I, I learned a lot, and that's an area I would examine in more detail. But but the short answer is use the product of your market orientation to influence. Emma, watching the first module, I was shouting, yes, yes, yes. Very good. Much like that scene when Harry met Sally. Yes. Uh, reason so bluntly, knowing I'm in a company that focuses on products and the MGs, but when you're stuck in the situation, how do you even attempt to introduce a different way of thinking, especially when only being mid-level seems an impossible task? Again, so two two answers, Emma. I knew this was going to come up a lot. The Rowit video, and don't try and make them market-oriented. Give them the products of your market orientation would be my tips. Katie, could you give some more B2B examples for market orientation? It always seems easy to understand in a B2C context. It is easier to understand, Katie, in a B2C context because we can just go KFC. You know what they do. Let's go. Um, I think in a B2B context, you have one more two more complications, too. One, there are, there's a myriad of consumer decision-making. It isn't a, a bloke sat at home on his couch. It's now six people who have different influences and want different things in the buying committee. That's the first thing. And the second challenge, 
you've got to get through the sales force who let's face it are 90% of the execution and who may protect you from getting through for me then b2b market orientation comes down to a couple of things first and we'll get onto this in segmentation. When you segment, segment at the firm level. Don't segment at the different decision maker level. It's very hard to get market orientation at that stage. So what I always say is segment companies. And then when we choose a, a certain target group of companies, market orientation dictates then you understand the buying committee inside and how they decide. So that's what you position to. That's a really important part of it. The second part of it in market orientation is you have to have to have a strong, relatively positive relationship with the sales force. When I worked in medical B2B marketing, which is kind of half my career, um, it was clear to me that we had these technical marketers who were nine out of 10 on marketing skills. But if you look at their interaction and influence on the sales force, it was two out of 10, yeah? They didn't really talk to them at all. So nine times two is 18 out of 100, yeah? They're pretty, pretty useless. You could then get an average marketer, six out of 10, um, but who knew the sales force, worked with them, consulted with them, had a, a bit of an influence on them, you know, 10 out of 10, and suddenly you've got 60, and they're three times as useful. I, I think without that market orientation where the, the sales force helped populate the segmentation with you and for you, I, I don't think this works. So in that sense, for me, market orientation is a far more political thing in B2B than it is in B2C. Alex Wilkinson, hi Mark, given the increased usage of price comparison sites for financial and utility products, is there a place for price-oriented organizations or is this approach doomed to fail in the long run? Um, yeah, no one's on those comparison sites, Alex, that wants to be on them, I think is the fair summary. Price orientation is just commo is commodity management. And look, there's nothing wrong with selling a commodity. Well, there is two things. Your margins suck. And if someone, the, the key point is, if someone comes along with a slightly cheaper product than you, and they will, you're gone, right? Because your only claim to market is, we do this at this price. There's always a better looking guy in the discotheque, at least in my experience. And if that's all you're positioning on, you're always going to lose. You know what I mean? So yeah, there are com most companies are suffering the, indignity of being on a comparison site none of them want to be there or they're looking for ways out of it so i don't think it's a legitimate orientation what you're describing isn't price orientation it's a commodity commodity play and we spend our lives getting out of that because commodities aren't very profitable and they're imminently replaceable ekaterina you use terms consumer and customer interchangeably i know i know uh, in cpg fmcg organizations they are very different phenomena i know Consumer being the end user, customer, or retail partner through which the product is being sold. Do you consider this distinction important for other industries and overall marketing discipline? It, it is in FMCG. Um, it changes from industry to industry, Ekaterina. I, I'm sorry. I know from a sort of P&G, Unilever point of view, consumer butters their toast and customer sells them the toast. I, get, I, do, I do understand that point. It's just that in other industries, customer uh, um, is and consumer are used more interchangeably. And even in, in luxury, we always went after client because we felt it was something different again. So yeah, generally speaking, you're right. Especially in FMCG, there is a customer that buys but doesn't consume the product, and then a consumer further down the chain. And, and it, it does bear repeating. Hannah Ward, do you think it's possible to get valuable results from a focus group 
that you have to do online. Our audience is spread across the world, so gathering 10 customers with one segment in the flesh would be impractical. Also, it's common practice to incentivize customers to take part in focus groups. I tried to run some one-on-one -on -one loyalist interviews recently, but found it hard to find customers willing to do anything face-to-face. -face. Most of them requested the questions via email. Mm. Look, there's no official guidance on this, right? It's all about convenience. Generally speaking, there has to be an incentive to really get good results, first of all, right? even with loyalists. And there's nothing wrong with that, with paying them, right? Second, I've, I have not been involved with an online focus group at this stage. I, my only thought, so there's a caveat there. I don't know what I'm talking about. My caveat would be if we're going to do the convenience of online discussion, I, I do one-on-ones on the video rather than that physical meeting. I mean, why do we use focus groups? Because getting people into a room, it's, a, it's economies of scale mostly, right? We don't want the interaction too much. We're just trying to get eight points of view in one hour. If you can make it more convenient by being digital, I would go more to one-on-one -on -one interviews um, and do them more conveniently that way. But again, I have no experience of it yet, so I don't know. But certainly paying an incentive to do one-on-one -on -one interviews digitally seems to me like a good approach. Uh, Orestis. Hi, Mark. You mentioned the danger of bad questions. What would your take be on good questions or examples of some better questions you've seen? In my experience, the best questions particularly attitudinal or behavioral, are the ones that lead to actionable answers. By the way, loving the module. Ah, good man. Um, uh, look, I think that I didn't want to get too much in the weeds of questionnaire design. It's a whole new world. But what I will do, so we'll do some follow-ups, you know, from your questions. Kantar do a really good brief, really brief online class on designing surveys. Let me put a link to that because I think it's really good material and it will help in your quest. Marta. One more question regarding the B2B world. How do you see ethnography taking place on digital B2B products? Um, there is a guy called Rob Cosinets who created a thing called Netnography, which is basically ethnography done digitally. And he's been doing it for, I don't know, man, 15 years. I'll put you a link to Cosinets in my follow-ups as well, because Cosinets is, is good. And his point would be, yes, you can do a digital netnography in B2B. I love, generally, I love ethnography in B2B. I don't know about digital, but he does. Katie, I work for a marketing comms agency. We often receive so much data to analyze from clients. How would you go about extracting what matters? I'm not sure that it's an, an impossible question, but sometimes it's hard to know where to start. Um, the place to start, and it won't help you, Katie, is in the questions themselves, not in, in analyzing the data. So if you look at that backwards approach, Katie, it's not about how you analyze data, it's how you approach literally generating it in the first place. I think once you have a mass of data, there's not, there's not a lot you can do. And, and to my point in the class, you find yourself in a room going, what does this tell us? Nothing, right? The, the trick of backwards market research, which I encourage you to explore, is in the initial generation of the data. Now, how you train clients to do that, that's a different question. Debbie Marlowe, thanks for introducing us to backwards market research. It makes perfect sense to know what you want answered. It really does once you get it, right? And it's even better. I mean, it's one of those things where you think, oh, that's good in theory, but when you do it in practice, Debbie, it's even better, trust me. Uh, I'm trying hard to imagine what the question slides would be. Can you share examples so we know where we're heading? Well, that's why I put Mark and James go backwards, okay? So if you look in the extra material, I tried to find an example where 
I, I did it for a client and the client let me, because he's a mate of mine, the client sort of let me put the stuff in there. Have a look at the interview we did because we talk about the whole process in practice there. That's the place to start. I can't share the whole thing because it's confidential, but there's enough to get you going. Uh, Martin, hi Mark, on your point qual before quant, that totally makes sense for an existing product or service where you have some pre-existing audience data. How would you go about it if you start on a new offering and have a rather blank slate to work with? What would you What would you do in case you have a quant panel first to help you inform your qual? And if not, how would you define your focus groups? Ah, look, Martin, I'm still, I mean, my point is, I mean, if you want the fancy name for it, it's called the hermeneutic circle, right? Qual to quant to qual to quant. If you wanted to start with quant and then move to qual and then keep turning, it's still fine. It's just that initial quant is often a little bit weak. Yeah, so you can use your quant panel, do a bit of exploration and move to qual and start turning. That's fine as well. It's just if you're going to start somewhere, I would say start with qual. And same goes for new product development. Don't start, you know, you can start, as I said, with a complete, you know, hypothetical product development idea. The sooner you can get out and just get some qual insights and start turning the wheel, the, the better you're going to be. Oh, Marco's in with a big one. Okay, Marco, I have three questions. The Morton scale, it's mentioned in the video that you like the Morton scale and you used it yourself. What do you see the minuses would be for using this scale, if any? For example, questions like we are more customer focused than our competitors. I feel this is a hard question to realistically answer due to many reasons. Yes, but it's, Marco, it's a scalar questionnaire, which means th those questions were developed by a very high scientific process. They're hard to answer but the answers when combined with the others give us the most predictive measure of market orientation so this was built by you know far smarter quantitative scientists than me the the downside is you don't got you haven't got benchmark data until you measure it two or three times or you've got an industry database but nonetheless the the scalar questions it's from the handbook of marketing scales it's a proper scalar questionnaire so those questions are hard to answer but their structure is very deliberate. Number two, alternatives versus competitors. You've mentioned the consumer-centric com companies should look more at alternatives versus competitors. I see the value in that way of thinking, but you can, can you clarify this on one concrete law, the share of voice versus share of market relationship, as these are calculated with companies choosing the category and competitors. Have you seen in practice that these calculations are made by alternatives, which will then give different views of where the company stands? I haven't, but I tell you what, Marco, that's a really good point. In fact, it's so good, Marco, that despite the relative weakness of your first question, your second question, Marco Mikes, gives you question of the week. You win a small car or a holiday to Greece. Um, that's great. I, 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 I mean, what's my answer? Um, I've never seen anyone do it. They use the traditional standard category competitors. Is that a fundamental flaw? No. Is it a weakness? Yes. You make a great point. Number three, fonts, pantons, and a consistent look and feel. Here I'm referring to a specific part of your article. Look at your brand from the customer's perspective, not the other way around. I just want to get your thoughts on this, or just to confirm what you're aiming at here. In my experience, one of the most important things in every brand's touchpoint is that people understand what brand is actually promoting the product, as you mentioned in the salience part of the same article. This is why consistent look and feel is crucial um, for a lot of brands. Uh, did you mention this just to emphasize that the consumer does not care about things like exact color? Yeah, that's my point. I mean, yeah, I mean, I spent yesterday working with a very large brand on a specific Pantone and a specific font and an angle of their font. 
Um, so I agree it's important. But when we turn it around from the customer's point of view, they're not really picking up on it as much, even though I think it's a good driver of salience. Alex, in quant, good work though, by the way, Marco, you, you win the, that middle question's a, a, a zinger. Hi, Mark, in quant, how much value should we place on prompted responses versus unprompted? How much should we approach the use of two question styles when working backwards? Yeah, I agree, Alex. I, again, I'll, I'll put a link to the Kantar stuff that covers this as well. Um, I think it's really important in a lot of questionnaire design to work off what has come from an unprompted source. So what we mean by that is, um, what's a good example? When you do consideration, so which brands would you consider? Um, it's really important to, to give them a list of brands that came out of an earlier question, such as awareness. You know, When you think about shaving, which brands come to mind? One, two, three, four. Now, looking at these four brands, which ones would you consider at the moment? The list has come from an unprompted source, and now we can move through it. I think it's a very important part of it, Alex, and I, I think you have to be very cautious when we when we give them a prompted list that we aren't introducing stuff that isn't important. Pedro Campos, thank you for the class. Such a nice start. I have one question about product-oriented companies. Are we able to say that Pantene by P&G is a brand that operates in that model? given the amount of products they are constantly launching. Um, I know that PNG is not product oriented, but Pantene is a brand that just seems to be closing gaps with different products rather than innovating and bringing real value. Maybe Pedro, but again, I, I don't think product orientation just means launching lots of products, yeah? It means how they approach the whole challenge. So I, I can't comment, I, well, I can. Anything that comes out of PNG, it's gonna be market oriented. Sometimes launching lots of products is filling gaps, as you say. They can still be market-oriented products, even though they're gap fillers. Jenny Inch, as marketers, how do we start to shift a well-established mindset in a business, e.g. in sales or product-oriented business? How do we show a proof of the benefits of market orientation? So this is the common question, Jenny, no pain in asking it. Again, Deshpande video and using data rhetorically are my two answers. Debbie Marlowe, what are your thoughts on putting employees before customers? The scenario, a new business model is being set up and the culture will be developed on an employee first mindset. Can this be equal to having a market orientation? I believe Richard Branson his Virgin Days focused on employee satisfaction as satisfied employees would then keep customers happy. Is this the case? I've always, yeah, I've seen a lot of this and I always feel a little, you know what I mean? Um, it runs against market orientation to say employees come first because they're being paid to be in the business. I think the short answer to your question, Debbie, is in service-oriented businesses where the employee frontline is such a huge part of the business, you probably do want to put them first because they drive so much of the customer experience. However, when we start getting into, I don't know, automotive, where the service isn't important, I suspect then customer orientation should be more at the fore. But I, yeah, I've seen that stuff before, and it is mentioned a lot. Roz Bowman. I'm assuming some methods that tech now offers for market research are also accepted methods at the ethnographic end of the scale. I'm thinking about consumer-created video diaries and also video surveillance in homes. Absolutely. It sounds fishy, but the amount of Insta videos I see made up from kitchen cams. Are there any case studies of these uses and also any key watchouts? It's not as common as you think, Roz. I've, been, I've used it several times to watch people watching advertising with their permission. And it has two advantages, right? One, it's just pure data. Um, so, you know, I, I did a lot of work on how people actually watch ads versus 
how experiments are done on people watching ads. And so we got permission to go into six different homes. We put little cameras in, recorded it all. Um, and the advantage, first of all, was we weren't there. So with ethnography, normally the observer has a big impact on, on what's being observed. There was still an impact, but far less, because people very quickly forgot the cameras were there. Trust me, we saw shit that they definitely didn't think, oh, my, there's a camera here. They quickly forgot, because it was their living room. The other advantage of it I found in ethnography was you can then do, um, what do they call it, um, something play. Anyway, you, 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 you can sit down with, the in this case, the family, and you can show them video of their own behavior and then sort of auto track the, the you know, so what are you doing here? Uh, you know, and what is this? And they go, oh, well, this was this. So they can almost comment on their own behavior, which doesn't happen when it's happening live as much, like in chop alongs and things like that. So yeah, I think in theory, it's a brilliant idea. Um, I'd say stuff like Instagram videos are probably more a secondary data source, but using video and digital video to track things is something we should use more of. Debbie Marlowe, in the sample size part of the market module, the example given is a is the market split of 20% telescope, 80% binoculars. Can you give some examples of how to get to such a basic starting point in the market and how accurate does it need to be? If we're not set on the basics before we're in the territory of guessing and a pointless exercise. Yeah, this is a common question. You, you To get the overall market size, Debbie, you can be pretty approximate. So you can usually find some secondary data um, which will give you enough of a population number that you can create it, yeah? And it really doesn't matter that much at that early stage of the process. I, I'd say to you, 90% of the time, Google's going to give you a... Like, if I'm going after diabetes again, people with diabetes in Australia, I'm one click away from getting some data point that tells me the total population. Um, and that's true, bizarrely, in most cases, and it will do. You know what I mean? It will do. Very... Comfort with imprecision at that level is fine. Craig Fawcett. Hi, Mark. I'm enjoying the material so far. Good. On backwards market research, how would you encourage both marketeers and research partners to keep an open mind? For example, in a beverage manufacturer, the marketer decides they want to launch a new variant. They could set up the research to show that this is a good idea, but actually consolidation of their existing offering might be a wiser choice that has not been considered. And then, even if the research shows a new launch to be a good idea, the team may focus on a new flavor when a new size or healthier variant might be better received. I guess, how can we avoid tunnel vision? There's two different things going on there, Craig. So one of them is the, the strategy needs to come after the diagnosis. Yeah, What you're describing at the top there is a company jumping straight to a strategy. So the point of diagnosis is study that to develop the strategy. Don't start with a strategy and kind of then shoehorn it into the market. That's the first point. Second point is the joy of qualitative research done properly is it really does um, remove all of that. If you People often say you can lead a focus group, right? You really can't. And I'm going to show you some examples in a couple of weeks' time. When you suggest something that isn't, you know, isn't good or you try and force something, people go, no, 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 that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. So qualitative, I think, is a great anchoring tool that, you know, I've, I, you know, there are downsides to qual research. One of the great upsides is if you've got a dumb product idea, qual's going to kill it in an hour. You know what I mean? It's pretty hard to get it through, you know what I mean, once you're at the proposal stage. So qualitative research has a role here that I think we, we don't talk about enough. But my final answer is just do the process, yeah? 
Market orientation to research to segmentation to targeting sets up, I think, then this is a target segment who want this. Then you can suggest new flavor, but also other things. And, and I think at that point, you can let the market give you fair commentary. I think the point is the diagnosis for the sake of diagnosis takes away a lot of the, the risks. Ali Grinham, are you able to enter the exams as a team? And if so, how do you go about registering that fact? Okay, we've talked a lot about this this time around. We change, we change, Ali. You can do it as a team. What we're asking you to do now is just, we, we, we used to make it far more complex. You, you, we just allow you to collude with others and you all can submit either the same exam or a slightly, you can vary it slightly from your teammates if you disagree. So you work on it together, there's no collusion issue. And then individually you all submit the same exam. Or you can tweak it a little bit on the side. But work together is fine. And we won't get to the exam till week nine, so cool your jets. Angela Murphy, the question. How hard shall I push back on management who resist the idea of doing our own research? The context. This month, I started a new job at a B2B software company that has traditionally done almost all sales through distributors and resellers. This setup has resulted in us knowing very little about the customers who buy and use our software. Only in the past year has the marketing team set up proper tracking of inbound leads. So far, I've seen a lot of qual research from different departments, but it's very limited. There hasn't been any quant research to support any of the findings. Armed with the confidence from the first two mini-MBA modules, I've explained to my boss and his boss that the qual we have right now might not be strong enough to inform a strategy. Spot on. I sense their immediate resistance to us doing our own research as they encourage me to just come up with something, even if we don't have all the info. A part of me obviously wants to insist on some decent research, you know, so we don't waste the next year going after the wrong segment. But on the other hand, this is the first time in the strategic role and I don't want to step out on toes. Any advice? Yeah, you're getting a big signal, Angela, that you, you've tried your best. Qual will have to do and you need to move forward. <clears throat> the only good news is Qual on its own has weaknesses. We'll, we'll talk about them in, in future modules. But it, it isn't as, you know, it isn't like just going to market with nothing. So my advice is get from your boss and your boss's boss, step step off. Um, do it with the best of the qual data for this year and build a little bit more trust and come at it again next year from a quantitative point of view. Yeah, it doesn't have to be perfect. It'll be good enough. And you have good qual, right? Ben. Uh, and one more thing, you can always go back and retest some ideas qualitatively as you go. Ben de Castella, uh, on brand tracking, have you seen any companies successfully move from traditional tracking metrics like awareness and consideration to the Ehrenberg Bass endorsed approach built around category entry points? While the latter makes sense when you read up on it, it's more complex and requires a big education job for stakeholders who can't be asked with the final details and just want a big number to shout about. It looks like your tracksuit platform tracks awareness consideration. Where do you stand on it all? It's a good question, Ben. I'm a big fan of Jenny Romanyuk, first of all. I really, I, I like her and I think she's great. I'm a big fan of category entry points. I think the, I, so for, for those of you not on top of this and you're allowed not to be on top of this. So normally we queue with the category. When you think about uh, uh, airlines, which brands come to mind? That, when you think about it, isn't how the consumer brain works because we don't start with airline and then we move to brands. We start with, I need to go home for Christmas to Scotland, right? And when you queue it with a category entry point like going home to see your parents at Christmas, 
suddenly British Airways and Ryanair are there, but so is you know Greater Western Trains and hiring a car and whatever else. So what it does is it starts to reveal these the the four or five major ways that you might be in the market for a plane or champagne or you know footwear. And so the, it makes a lot of sense. The the problem for me with it is it, it's a completely different technology. So the funnel, if you think about it, when you look at it from a sort of salience category any point, point of view, the whole top two thirds of the funnel becomes that model instead. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And yeah, with tracksuit, for sure, they do it in the traditional way. We are literally a week or two away. I'm going out to talk to the tracksuit guys in New Zealand. And one of my discussions with them many others is trying to create a wait for it written instrument where we build a slightly more complex and advanced tool which for a bit more money for a client would give them you know a lot of other stuff things like pricing product development um conversion ratios but one of them on my list ben yeah category entry points and i i still think you can have both so you can have a traditional funnel with conversion rates but having that category entry point structure so that we're able to say these are the top four category entry points and this is where your brand sits is a pretty good tool. I think we should use it. Along with the traditional funnel. I don't again, I don't like the you know, this beats that. I think both serve a different purpose. Um but I do think category entry points have a role to play in a lot of businesses and I think it's a, a, a brilliant discovery. Genuinely different. Lauren Potter, I'm about to embark on some research which will consist of survey followed hopefully by some in-depth interviews. I work in B2B and want to understand which types of commerce people want from what commerce people want from us to help with their onward sales, how they want to receive them, how frequently. The hypothesis is that different profiles within the audience will want different things and the objective is to develop a more insight-led strategy for different profiles. My worry is that the types of questions above are very broad and our audience may not actually know what they want. Any tips on ensuring we get the most out of the research and that we're asking the right questions? Uh, look, um, my only suggestion, Lauren, is it's the wrong way round, yeah? Um, if you start with a survey and then do in-depth interviews, you'll do fine, but the danger is, to your point, the survey may ask the wrong questions. If you do the depth interviews first and then do the survey, you'll ask the right questions, you'll ask less questions, and you'll be in a much better place. Megana, hey Megana, how are you? Uh, how do you decide who should be part of your research, which segment to study, when you're launching a product which means you have no existing buying customers yet, and your product could potentially have many different lucrative segments? So the way to do it at this stage, Megana, is to work out the total market, then work out if there are any segments within that total market. And as you'll see next week, that has got nothing to do with your product. It's to do with the needs of the marketplace. So uh, the, the good news is you just need to broadly define who is the potential market and then try and segment that market on the basis of needs. And then in comes the product that ideally you augment for different groups. We'll talk a lot more about it in modules three and four. Victoria Edwards, hello there. I'm really enjoying the course. I've been completing the lectures and wanted to double check there's no coursework we do during the week. Definitely not. No, Victoria, we're like Montessori. Um, I just think you're too busy. We have a big project at the end in the form of a marketing plan slash exam, but that's a ways off yet. So no, I just want you to do the classes like you're doing and enjoy, and we'll get to the, we'll get to the work later. Charles, hi Mark. 
what are the fundamentals of a good market research brief? I looked, I mean, um, it's a good question. I've never been asked this, I suppose. Um, I, I, I'll give you my personal answer. I think the caliber of marketer you are and most people on the courses means the brief should almost be a, a badly written questionnaire in word format that the research agency will now turn into an instrument. I, I think that's the way it should be done. I think if you just give them a brief of like you know general questions, too often the research company gives you too much. So I think you should be good enough by the end of this course to to write you know not perfectly, but these are the questions and the rough sequence I want, and then from there discuss with the the research company what what it should look like. I I think that's that's eminently doable. Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, and and entirely possible. Um, uh, uh, sorry, I lost my track there. Uh, Benji, how is the mar mini MBA market oriented? Which steps have you taken to become market oriented? That's a good question. I'd probably divide it into two phases, Benji. So when I so I'm product oriented originally. So I, this wasn't created to satisfy some nascent need in the market. I had a baby seven years ago. And at the time, I was working three weeks a month on planes overseas on consulting, and I couldn't keep doing that and be a dad. And so I, I really spent about a year trying to work out how do I still make enormous amounts of cash without getting on planes. So that it didn't begin with the market. It began very much with a produ production need, you know. But as soon as I had that sort of, now what am I going to do? I, I started to, to, to test out all kinds of different concepts. And um, when it came to Mini MBA, the, the main initial research was I took about 15 people, all of whom I considered MBA worthy, people like you, who hadn't done an MBA. And I asked them why they'd done an MBA, but more importantly, they were all marketers. What would they, what would they want from a course that gave them the equivalent of the MBA without the pain of the MBA? And that's where it started. And I sort of began to proof test this online course, 10 weeks, cost a thousand quid. And at the same time, I was looking at a lot of secondary data from Marketing Week. So we were getting at the time about 600,000 unique visitors a month to Marketing Week. And I was thinking I could convert, this was a bullshit part, about 1% of them to do a mini MBA. So that, that stacked up to 6 million quid at a thousand quid ahead. And I was like, yeah, that sounds all right. And I think it's practical. That was kind of it, right? Then I went and built the product. And that comes into pedagogy right I had 25 years as a marketing professor I knew what I wanted to teach you that bit I wasn't listening I'll, and I was deliberately not listening because pedagogy trumps market orientation it's one of the areas where I'm not going to give you what you think you want because it would all be you know social media and stuff I'm going to give you what proper marketing looks like right but once we did the first course it's not like you know creating a car that you have to sell for 10 years then I would, you'll see you get a very comp, very uh, deep instrument which will test your experiences and feedback on the course at the end of this course. I spend literally two, three days each each time we do a course looking at your feedback. And then we have time, because we only do it twice a year, we do genuinely change 15, 20%, not just of the content, but platform stuff, structural stuff, everything. And, and I think that's the key market orientation point for me was once we got it up and running with I mean, our first class was 300 people, right? We were then starting to turn a wheel. 
and, and and for me that was the bit i always knew once i got it going i could tighten it and we will do as much tweaking now in year eight as we will as we would have done in year one uh, and we keep learning and i think that that's probably the market orientation point for us because we we have the luxury of constant tweaking jack on the topic of ethnographic research in customer interviews in their own environment what kind of information are you hoping to come away from those interviews with well everything jack so um in b2c if you look at you know the argument that ag laffley and the png guys make you can pull someone into a room to talk about toothpaste but they make all this shit up if you sit on the edge of their toilet they'll go you know the problem it's this thing here so you get much more closer to the grounded behavioral truth in b2b you try and get six b2b decision makers from different firms in a room a it's impossible and b they're all competing with each other so what you learn in b2b is when i visit a hospital and talk to a back surgeon um an orthopedic surgeon they will they will basically go okay let me show you um, this has happened to me let me show you what's wrong with your product um you see this this you know this this application thing doesn't work come on put your scrubs on i'll take you in i'll show you come through and have a look through the window and 40 minutes later we've got spurting and oozing and you know and he's like look see the guy's like oh, yeah. see look look see it doesn't work as well because look at the spurting look at the oozing right come back out I'll come in, I'll introduce you to the head of surgical practice. She told me this the first time around. Sue, talk to him. You spend five, six hours and you're like, holy shit, you know, we completely missed the point. Getting it grounded in their world means they speak much more openly. They show you stuff and you see the big picture. And for all those reasons, ethnography converts everyone that, that commits to it, I think. Siobhan Sharp. Often when senior stakeholders are panicking or wanting immediate sales, they just want tactics and don't believe either investing in long-term market strategy or even being market-oriented uh, to understand what's going on. What advice would you give for persuading other colleagues? Again, it's the great question, Siobhan. I mean, you're all making me think like we have to go and interview a few people that have done this, right? I'll work on that. Um, look, at, look at the great video with Dishbandi in the materials. He does address this a bit. And then I don't think you can get these guys to be market-oriented. I do think you can use data to kind of stop them in their tracks. Ankit. Hi, Mark. How to approach market orientation as a challenger brand in a category where competition is already market-oriented and already invests heavily in it? Yeah, it's not something that's differentiated, Ankit. It's not like they already do it, so we can't do that. Um, you just have to do it too and hopefully discover a separate place to play. But it's not like, you know, it's not, it, 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 it's, it's not you know, a, a competitive factor. It's something every company has to have in order to then work out what's going on. You know, the analogy in, in military strategy is just because my enemy has a great map doesn't mean I'm not going to use a map. I've got to build one too, you know. Uh, David Mosley, I uh, really enjoyed the conversation with James in Mark and James Go Backwards. One point that hit on was both of your excitations to write your own survey questions. Yeah. How do you recommend we can learn to be great at this so we can have the confidence once we slice up the data we'll have everything we need? Do you have a process or resources? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you a link to the nice um, Kantar course. Um, but remember, David, both me and James, when we write those questionnaires, they're shithouse, right? They're not great. Then we've got a good market research agency that will go, what do you mean? Okay, I got it we can create this into a little applet and it'll ask this like that. Is that what you want? So it, it, it's, it's, we still need the research agency to translate it, but 
we probably would have had 28 questions badly written and it does turn into about 28 30 actual questions better written by the research agency the Cantat course is good for that uh, Philippe Crump, uh, if you're in a market where you're selling to a small number of large government organizations with only a handful of decision makers but a wide range of influence, influencers from consultants to authorities, are there any steps you'd take outside of what you've described in the market research module? If so, what are they? I mean, the main one is, is ethnography. And then, Philippe, we're going to talk about other stuff later in the course, which is very relevant, right? Things like touchpoint analysis. Uh, net promoter score yeah the, for now it's fine there'll be more in the course as you'll see Alexandra share of search uh, regarding market share are there any lear learnings regarding FMCGs or general observations reflecting the input from Lesbinet a new way to track advertising and brands and is this still like the three years later or are we on another digital level to track things and get reflections where are we in 2023 and what are the trends of tracking Oh, look, it hasn't changed that much. I mean, Les's talk is two years old, is it? Um, I, I, I think it, I've included it because it's still the best resource. And I don't mean, you know, I mean, right up to now that, that you can have on it. And if you want a share of search data point, that talk covers everything. And finally, Fong Chao. One question regarding the Morton scale mentioned in module one. How do you interpret the results? Is it just a case of if your score is less than X number, you're not market oriented enough? And then if you're not market oriented, how do you go about changing it? Yeah, it's a very good question. So I've talked many times about whether we could get all you guys to fill it out. So we'd have like a relative database. You could find out if you're good or shit at the different things. We should do that. Um, in the meantime, though, the the... the the best way to use Morton is to get it one, I, I've used it this way. You get it once from a client before you start improving market orientation in a big global client. And then you re-measure after six or 12 months. That's partly to see, you know, right. You can use the initial Morton scale to measure where are the relative weak points when you do correlations to performance, etc., and country by country comparisons. But it's real strength is in year two, we still aren't seeing very big commercial impacts of improving marketing yet because it takes time. But look how much the market orientation has improved, particularly in these areas where it was especially bad. That's the main relativity at the moment that you'd use it for, um, if, if that makes sense. Uh, Eleanor. Uh, Hi, Mark. How would you suggest educating the business on market orientation when the business thinks they're listening to their consumers already? In a bigger business, the marketing team could invest in educating stakeholders. However, in smaller businesses where marketing team is normally under-resourced, how would you approach the challenge? Um, I wouldn't educate them. Again, same, same answer, Elena. I wouldn't educate them on market orientation. I would educate them on your knowledge of the market when they make decisions in their field. I think that, you, you, you know... The Jeff Bezos thing is, is a little misleading. He was the CEO, right? He built the company. He was able to create the whole company consumer-centrically. We can't do that. I don't, I've never seen that in clients I've worked for. I want the marketing team to be market-oriented and then use your resources to help the other departments when they're making their decisions. Mark Pierce, say you were joining a company that was product-oriented. What advice would you give to persuade the senior management of that company to reevaluate their thinking an influencer shift to a market-oriented approach. There's a couple of there's a couple of classic ways to do it, right? The first way is showing them their definition of competition is totally different from what the market is considering. That's always an aha moment. 
The other area where I've seen it happen is pricing. Um, we'll talk about pricing and pricing data. It's not hard to get. And when you show them what the price could be versus what they're charging, that's a moment that would work, Mark. Um, what else? What else have I seen work? There's some data that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks' time, the 95-5 rule, where 95% of your total market isn't buying at the moment. And you can show that with data, and that has a big impact. So there are certain points, we'll get to them in the course, that demonstrate you don't know about the market and I've got the data, where you can get that that influence going. Tom, Silk, in your presentation, you seem to use the words consumer and customer interchangeably. I found it helpful to distinguish between the two, for Coke's customers might be defined as their distributors and retailers rather than consumers. Perhaps I'm being pedantic, and correct me if this is the case, what I'm really interested in is how we might weight the relative value of information from customers and consumers. In pharma, for example, how does one weigh the relative importance of information from GPs versus patients? In schools, how does one weight the importance of parents? Um, good answer from Adrian Co. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the reason is in FMCG, the, the, the consumer and customer are very distinct. Um, we tend to be more interchangeable elsewhere, but you're absolutely right. Um, in terms of weighting, though, Tom, it, it's, it's absolutely variant on the situation. In fact, it's even variant on the country. You know, famously working in medical markets, you always upweight the impact of the doctor on decision making in Japan because literally the patient will never question the doctor's opinion. I've only ever worked in one case in Japan where uh, the doctors were not were, were being overruled by patients, and it was a very, very, very amazing exception, right? Which comes down to a, a long, long story. So. Um, it depends. And one of the things you're getting from your research is the degree to which you weight the various decision makers in the decision making unit or in the overall um, customer consumer relationship. Catherine, Rose, Potton, I expect I'm in a similar position. I, I want to do great marketing. However, I find myself in a business that is sales oriented. Rather than try to educate those around me, and in the boardroom. Do you have any advice how I can maintain a market-oriented focus personally? Now, this is a good approach, Catherine. I anticipate this will be difficult to maintain longer term when the performance of my department is measured solely on the tactics we deploy. Or in other words, do you think it's possible to be a great marketer in a business that doesn't allow you to be market-oriented? Man, if I hadn't given the prize to Marco or Miles, Catherine, I'd have given you the prize. That's a brilliant question. And, and, and so, first of all, I think you're 100% right. And I, 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 not only do I think it's possible to be a great marketer in a business that doesn't allow you to be market-oriented, I think that's what most marketers do. So they're judging you, Catherine, on tactics and on sales impact. The good news is that, as we know, market orientation and the journey we're on will make for better tactics and ultimately better sales performance, which you will get evaluated on. So keep going. Retain and fight for your market orientation. We're all proud of you. And the good news is we do this market orientation, not for the sake of it, because it does make us more money and it does produce better tactics. So in some ways it will come together. But you're not on your own. I think this is the story of marketing, is holding the candle of market orientation in the darkness of an organization. And, and think about it, Catherine, what you're saying, because it's absolutely true. Almost everyone in your company and everyone else's company doesn't follow the money from sales to its original origin, the customer, the consumer, right? Mind-boggling, right? And yet, so true. 
Michael Hardiman, Michael, regarding going backwards from the content lecture, it seems to me creating a long-term view, understanding where you want to go and which decision you want to take are important. The main question is how you come to this situation. How do you know which topics to go for that you want answered? As sometimes with, with customers, we are marketers are also in the dark. Qualitative research, Michael. So the bit we don't talk about in backwards, I'll talk about a little bit with, with James, is before we went and built the survey, we just went and sat in about four different places, uh, four different hospitals where they treat diabetes patients. And we sat with the educators, we sat with the endocrinologists, we sat with the patients, and we just said, what's going on? We don't understand anything. Literally, me and James sat there. We're like, we don't understand anything. What's going on with your pump? How, how often do you change your pump? What do you think of your pump, right? We played up more of the idiot than we thought. That, that period is super important because that's how we work out what the topics are. That's the qual that then went into the backwards quant. Nicoletta Olympia, a question regarding, look at your brand from the customer's perspective, not the other way around. So on your opinion, the best reaction of the Queen's passing from a brand would be no reaction at all. Isn't a reaction of mourning creating a top of mind, even for a short period of time, which could lead to some increase in sales? Yeah, but my point, Nicoletta, is no one would notice. Nobody cares, yeah? Um, it's it, it, look. It wasn't meant to be a, a slight at you know companies that did that. It was more just an example of how deluded they are that anyone cares what a company thinks about the death of a queen. Now, if someone, if the if the CEO had gone on and done it, that's a more personal thing. But we're not we're not bothered what the brands say about these matters. You know what I mean? And, and you know, on a bigger level, this is my challenge to brand purpose. A lot of the time, nobody cares what your brand purpose is inside the company because your brand is not that important. So yeah, that's my take on it. I, I suspect I'm right too. Nicoletta, what would be an example of a marketing activity or strat or tactics that has developed starting from the motto "the consumer doesn't give a shit about your brand"? Um, I mean, I think almost all of them, right? So my point is, if you look at generating salience, what what's the difference between brand awareness and salience? What we learn from salience is that it fades very quickly and it's much lower than you think. You work in these businesses and you think, everyone knows my brand. I worked for Benefit Cosmetics in San Francisco for many years. Brilliant company, yeah? And um, one of the decisions the very smart team had made was that, um, America was pretty much a mature market for them. So they had to revitalize and rejuvenate, but basically the brand was everywhere and th they needed to look at foreign markets. And then we did the first bit of research um, ever, really on the marketplace, many years ago. And we discovered that when you do a prompted, uh, uh, when you think of a new mascara, which brands come to mind, Benefit had 14% of the North American market. 14% of the market thought about Benefit when they thought about mascara. And I had the CEO say to me, this data can't be right because our, everyone knows about our mascara. Our mascara is like everywhere. And I said, no, it's just that you think so from this building. And suddenly Benefit realized that they'd kind of fallen asleep on mascara. And even though it was an existing product, everyone had forgotten about it and no one gave, gave a damn about it anymore. They had to go back out to the market and remind them even though this is a 10-year-old product, benefit, benefit, mascara, mascara, mascara. And it's a simple example of what happens in companies where we start um, thinking everyone already knows our mascara, they love it, they get the humor, they're, you know, they're loyal to our brand, etc. Brands without investment and reinforcement rapidly fade from view. 
So I know it's a challenge, Nicoletta. I, I appreciate that. But, you know, I see it pretty much on every one of my trips to every one of my clients. They start believing their own bullshit, that the brand... And it comes from a good place, right? You work for a brand five days a week, eight hours a day. You you really do start believing, you know, this this brand is important. It's at the center of the world. And what you forget is it's just toothpaste and there are 19 other brands and nobody cares. And when you get that, what you start doing is salience. You start changing the way you communicate. You start changing the way you codify your advertising with distinctive brand assets. In my experience, it's possibly the most important insight about brand management is the market really don't care. And therefore, you have to approach it in a very different way. Uh, in the video, Nicoletta again, in the video from the BMA class, Professor Deshpande presents the virtuous customer-centric cycle and says that with customer-centric values-driven organizations, you can have motivated employees. I fail to see the causality here, especially in some cases. For example, let's think of a retail store. How can an employee feel motivated when she or he or she has to accept all kinds of shitty talk and attitude from customers and say, yes, you are right, because the customer is always right. From my perspective, an employee that has to deal with clients on a daily basis, I believe the goal of customer centricity is sometimes opposed to being employee centric. What's your point of view on this? And do you have any suggestions on reading material on the subject? Probably this is more of a subject for the mini MBA management. No, 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 I think it's super relevant. Um, it's kind of back to that earlier question about employees ahead of customers, right? It's a little bit intractable, Nicoletta. I mean, it's it, they both have a role to play. All I can tell you is, yeah, I think what you're describing is a realistic scenario. But there is a situation I've also seen in other companies where the serving of the customer and their delight then feeds a love of the brand for the employees. Not always, not always. But I think I think your point is Professor Despandi's circle does exist, just not always. Uh, Daniel, hi Mark, I understand that as marketers we speak on behalf of the consumer, always keeping them in mind and addressing what they want. I work in a trade team where our main KPIs are to drive demand sales and increase revenue. How do you find a balance between being market-oriented and working in a team that's core goal is to make sales? What are some practical examples of how this could work? It's dead easy, Dan. Look, you can't divorce the two out, right? So being market-oriented, building brand, um, sales, they're all the same thing, right? It, it, when we build funnels in a couple of weeks, it links them all together finally, right? And the point I would make to you is um, have faith in that process, yeah? Um, what is the best way to make sales? I fundamentally believe one of the big driver of sales is market orientation and the journey we're on here. Don't separate sales and marketing out. The 10 classes we're on will make you far more sales than almost any other approach that you're going to look at. And I always find it amazing when I work with marketing teams, even experienced marketers, and we do a proper bit of marketing, and then a year or so later it really works, and they kind of go, shit, this really works. And I'm like... What did you think we were doing? The purpose of market orientation is to make you more money and more sales. And it really does that. That's why we're here. So the, the two come together. The timings might be a little bit off, but they certainly come together. Claire. Hi, Mark. I work for a small business and I'm launching a marketing function. We are sales driven, but also a tight team of 20. Can you give me any advice on the typical pitfalls a small company might face when trying to implement market orientation? Yeah, look, I, I think the main one, Claire, is you're going to get sucked into what I call tactification, if you remember, and communication. 
and you're going to miss that point that to begin with market orientation isn't about you it's about the market yeah so i think the main challenge is put the business stuff away and work out your universe of customers and don't fall in the pitfall of thinking what do you think about us to begin with market orientation is what's going on with you and at some point we can transmogrify that into strategy but put your stuff down and just look at what's going on with the customer it's a it's a great place to begin and it will soon point you back towards strategy Jochen, uh on the morton scale and how to best evaluate yourself what is the best approach to answer point seven we are more customer focused than our competition you can easily rate yourself higher or not uh, uh, if you have the right insights how does one keep a neutral position with the right data um, it, look, it's an attitudinal question, Joachim, and, and remember, this is a scalar instrument, meaning it was created from a lot of scalar questions, and this, this set of questions best measures actual market orientation. Even though people answering the question may not know the answer, when you add that data together, the predictive quality of the scale is what counts. So it's not a real question, it's a question that says, does the team think this or not? Ingeborg Litt. Hey, Ingeborg. Currently, I work for a large corporation. They have several different departments, but they all evolve around the same core business. Our department, on the other hand, is the only one that differs from the core product. We also target a slightly different audience because of having a different product. We've been given a subname. The brand is very clear. That subname is not a brand. The brand is the same as the other departments. The subname is the value proposition of the brand. I'm staying with you here, Ingeborg. I'm staying with you. I'm in charge of creating this brand value proposition. This document should form the foundation for who we are and what we say and what we promise our customers. Okay, it's positioning. Further, it should be the starting point of turning our organization into a customer-oriented organization. We are currently conducting interviews with our target audience. Okay, question. Do you have any tips or advice for this process? What should I... Uh, um, so follow module two and the research approach and then follow module three, four, five, and six. We're gonna go, next few weeks, Ingeborg, we're gonna go through segmentation, targeting, positioning. It's all there for you. Just follow the modules, okay? You're gonna to get to your positioning, just go through it step by step, starting with some decent qual and quant research. Misa, Tom. Hi, Mark, how does market research differ between B2C and B2B businesses? Is there any special methods that can only be applied to B2B? In our company, the most commonly used is going out to see customers at their practice, and survey their technical people. Is that considered a market research? Yeah, 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 it's research on the market, Misa. Look, I'm not a big fan of differences between B2C and B2B. I'll tell you why. First, the LinkedIn B2B Institute in New York, who I'm very close to, do probably the world's best research. You'll see some of it as we go through the course on B2B marketing. They keep finding that all the rules of B2C directly apply to B2B. Second, people go, oh, B2B is different from B2C. B2C isn't even like B, isn't even the same as B2C. Selling yoga looks nothing like selling cars. And my point again is the whole thing is just a spectrum of different things. I believe we can get a great B2B marketer and put them in a B2C role and vice versa. I think we create these fences. Services versus product marketing. B2B versus B2C. There isn't any big differences, Misa. I mean, in, in, in B2B research... For me, ethnography becomes more important because I'd like to visit the whole company that's buying. But the reality is that's often true also of, of doing ethnography in B2C. So I wouldn't look for differences, Misa. I would look for the similarities, which are 
98 to 99% the same, no matter what people tell you. Becky, please could you explain more about purpose-driven businesses with a few more examples? With the Patagonia example, is this purpose-driven or is it just surface level and in fact a really good gimmick on an ad to drive sales? Uh, and Misa has the same question. Um, and, and Catherine has an answer. I'll tell you what I'll give you, Becky. I've got, a, I've got a, an article which talks about this exact point. Uh, and I will put I will put it as a follow-up. It, it, it's a very complex question, and I want to give you more examples. Patagonia is the real deal, and, I, and I've written an article about why they're the real deal and most other companies aren't. Um, Patagonia isn't a gimmick. I mean, they've given the whole company away now. Um, but let me post the article because I think it's a it's a it's a big topic that needs a a proper amount of discussion to, to cover it properly. Uh, Misa, I have a few questions. Understanding market orientation, I understand that it's done to show the wrong perception of marketers versus actual customer behaviour. However, general population usage of social media doesn't reflect the brand's target customer groups. So is it statistically kind of irrelevant as no brand should have the general population as their target customer group? So did Think TV have another research showing different demographic social media usage? Yeah, they did, Misa, but I think you're sort of overthinking it, right? The the, the point isn't... Um, the point is that the, the marketing industry... Um, when they when they have to guess what the market is doing, they use their own behavior. That's the point, right? Number two, marketing 180. How does this differ in a B2B context? It doesn't. Does the brand and service of one company differ to the next? No. So the 180 is always different, right, for each company. But again, looking for differences in B2B, there aren't any. Market orientation is just as important to B2B as it is B2C. I guess one implication is there are different there are different decision makers, so different one eighties, right? With the CEO versus the chief technology officer, but the process is the same. Number three, purpose orientation. Would you say that purpose orientation would only work in social enterprise? Uh, uh, thank you, Water. Who gives a crap? No, no. We're seeing it play out more and more in other companies, in various different ways. I think again the point is it doesn't have to be a total orientation like who gives a crap which again is half commercial to my knowledge, right? It's that it's another orientation swirling around the company that they have another further purpose driving what they're doing other than just making money and da da da. Emma Thomas, I'm really enjoying this course. I have two questions. I work for a company that I am highly focused on the positive social impact it has on people's lives. However, these people are not our customers per se. They are the end user of our products, consumers. Sure, they're not the ones buying the service. The buyers, I would say our customers care somewhat about the positive social impact our service has, but are making purchase decisions based on boosting recruitment, retention, costs, etc. I've pushed back against this view to categorize our customers as the people purchasing our service and marketing to the end user as an influencer. Is this the right approach? Should I be treating all of them as our customers rather than splitting them into more or less important categories? No, no, I think that's part of the game, Emma. I think you have to work out the total uh, channel. And then who's most important in the process in terms of making the decision for your product? So I think what you're doing is absolutely right. It's just working out what the relative influence is. Number two, what would you say are the best routes for intelligent sharing? How can I get data out more widely and change established views and opinions? Look, it really depends on the organization and the culture. Mickey Drexler used to have a, a speaker in all of the GAPS offices and he would broadcast the data. Um, 
it's sometimes presented in annual form. I, I can't give you a single answer. The irrigation depends upon the field, right? I think data, the two pieces of advice, a great chart is a wonderful thing. And also verbatim quotes from customers, or even better, the video from customers shared at a, f a corporate forum can be a show-stopping moment. Don't summarize the data. Oh, gosh, what have I just done? Don't summarize the data too much is my point. You know, just just use it, you know, use it. Uh, Laura, uh, I found your booking example really interesting, but I'm wondering, what is the best approach to take when you have no influence over pricing product or footprint growth? Is market orientation still the best approach? And when I say no influence, this is because all those things are set outside of the organization. It's not a matter of getting in the right means. I'm with you. So first of all, it is possible if you ask McDonald's or KFC to have an input into footprint pricing and product. I think the key point, Laura, is you're not going to ever have control of those things. I do think you can have some input. When we talk about pricing, which for me is the one to focus on, there are a couple of massive call-outs that no one else will do if you're not involved. And that's where you have to try at that point to say, can I just show you the price data or how we might present the price? I think when we get to that, you'll see a place where you can maybe have influence. Um, but not control. Laura, a question on bridging the gap between what people do and what they say they do. Is ethnography the only way to understand buying behaviours or is there secondary research available that does this? Do you really have to get in there and do it yourself? No, there's a quantitative way to do it, Laura, as well, which is um, you use what's called unstated or derived behaviours. So I can ask people in a survey, how important are the following five things in your decision? People just don't know. They give you bullshit answers. Or I can measure the five variables, and then I can look at the, how much those five variables correlate to a brand's preference. So the more I think a brand is environmental, does my preference go up or go down? So that's another way of getting at it using what's called unstated uh, behaviors. Alexander. I enjoyed your lecture on market research. I want to know your views on hybrid methods, surveys which integrate open-end responses into code frames using AI or quant-style analysis of human reactions and expressions. Do you see this as meaningfully disrupting the battle? What might this mean for marketers and how we plan to evaluate research? So yeah, there is, it's exciting, Alex. Here's my point, right? So not taking away from your point about AI, right? I'm still dealing with most of the marketers on this class. Good marketers aren't able to do any research or aren't able to feed that research into pricing. Right? So although this is exciting, it's also a massive distraction from the fundamentals of just doing research and having it influence decision making. And, and for me, that's where we go wrong so often. We're looking at the future and AI and we're not even doing the basics well. So I still think it's a distraction, but it's an exciting distraction. I'm speeding up because I'm conscious we've got eight minutes left. Oliver, Oliver Lewin, great start, thank you. I was left wondering why so few organizations adopt a market-oriented model, given it seems to offer greater, greater purpose. Um, is it something that new brands embrace but struggle to maintain? No, 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 it's not even present in, in, in those. I think the point, Oliver, that you're you're struggling to find is in order to be successful in business, you need two things, a product and a sale. We're always going to be the third wheel. Jennifer, what do you think about creating personas to document insights about your customers, specifically what really matters to them? I love it. 
as long as it's data driven and we'll talk about it in the module next week. Pete Sampson, it seems more popular than ever to be purpose oriented. Even many marketing and PR firms call themselves purpose driven. What do you think of this trend? Is it a genuine shift? I'm going to publish my article, Pete, which says it's a, a bit of both, but mostly bullshit. I'll do it in the follow-up materials. Greg Williams. Hey, Greg. I work in a sector where sales happen through distributors and therefore have very little or no impact with the end customer. Following the first two modules, I was wondering on how successfully to implement a customer-oriented approach, truly understand their needs. Are there tools to find customer databases in a specific sector? Yeah, yeah, you can, you can get panels of customers. The point, again, for you, Greg, is you've got your immediate customer. You have to understand them. In, in, ideally, as we said in the module, you've also got to under, understand your end consumer and ideally understand them better than your end customer. And, and it means going and doing end user research and pulling it back up the chain, if you're up for that. Chloe, I work at a software agency that makes apps. We're small and not well known. We've worked with some huge clients as well as startups and scale-ups. My point is our customers are completely different to one another. So doing research on them as a group doesn't seem the right approach. Also, it's all B2B. We currently spend nothing on research but asking the team what our clients are asking us at the moment. Can you recommend somewhere to start with research when our audience is pretty much anyone who wants an app? Okay, easy, Chloe, right? And I like Adrian's point too here, is I would just go and visit your 10 customers, um, give them an hour, buy them a coffee and say, how did you get to know about us? What are you using from us? What do you think about us? What can we do better? Why are you still with us? Just learn from the existing customers and take it out to other customers. You start there. Harry Hunt. Hey, Harry. I work in a home care company and the majority of our customers don't know what service they need from us because people don't tend to even think about having care until the moment they need it, which is often urgently and unplanned. Therefore, with the market orientation module, it got me thinking, how can we ask customers what they want when they themselves often won't know the answer? As we're a personal service, we have regular service reviews, and this is a great opportunity for me to tailor those review questions. Yeah, Harry, I think a little bit like mini-MBA, you don't have to worry about that. I think what you do is you talk to people once they need your service on what market orientation is, how can we make this better once you need it, yeah? And, and that's a bigger part of market orientation than the sort of preceding step. So yeah, talk to existing um, customers once they're using your service, not to, you know, to make it better um, is a legitimate use of market orientation. Angela Bracken, in the YouTube interviews, part of the optional reading, the statement was weighed, customers purchase your brand because they have a relationship with the company. How does this translate in the example of a fresh fruit brand that is a consumer-led brand but sold via grocery outlets and not direct? The consumer isn't aware of the master brand or company behind growing the apples. In the absence of a B2C e-commerce site, the majority of sales are reliant via grocery change. So our customer, uh, so understanding our, our customer is to understand the grocery customer. Kind regards, Angela. Yeah, so Angela, I'm with you. If you're, yeah, if you're just selling uh, private label products through uh, Coles or Woolies or wherever it might be, then absolutely your direct customer is pretty much it, right? I would still argue if you really want to go down there, understanding what consumers want from your category of fruit could be a useful way of doing more interesting stuff and having some, some leverage over the big guys. But otherwise, yeah, that's it. You can't have a relationship with them because it's controlled here. If you create a brand, of course, 
like many manufacturers do, you can have a relationship with them even though they're buying direct. But if you're playing the private label supply game, it, yeah, it's mostly about supplying Coles, Woolies, Costco. My only challenge to you is I've worked with so many companies that have listened to the retailer, tell them what the customer wants, and the retailer doesn't know. The retailer's telling you what they want from you, and you start to miss what the real market is looking for. So be careful with that. Harry Hunt, I work for a national franchise which has franchisees all over the UK. Our group of offices covers a certain area and is run separately to other neighboring franchises. Should this affect our strategy or the teaching in your modules? Because some things were constrained by a national level. Equally, the franchisor could be doing more marketing of a better strategy to support us locally. Yeah, look, it's all part of the game. I mean, it's not a deal breaker, Harry, but... Um, you know, it, it will constrain which bits and which which bits you can apply and which which bits you can't. But that's going to apply to everyone on the course. It's it's not a deal killer. Patricia, in a production-oriented company where the most important thing is to market the product and lead in innovation, what would you consider is the right time for the lab team to connect with the marketing team and develop a prototype and encourage a soft launch or even conduct market research? What would be the best roadmap? Look, I like it early and often, Patricia. Um, I, I like being able to pull um, to pull out pretty much from the from the from the lead user stage, and be able to go to a bunch of customers and say we're thinking about doing this. What are your thoughts on that? And and having that kind of panel of of consumers that we can refer to as we go through the process throughout. The earlier the better is the short answer, and then repeatedly afterwards. It's not this go to market, come back. See it as a wheel that you can keep turning. Uh, three more questions to go. Patricia, I've been involved in the creation of perception studies and surveys. I realized there were some challenges identifying the right sample size, and I found the sample size calculator to be a very useful tool. Good. I'm interested to better understand how the disclaimer of confidence level and confidence interval could be used as a tool in any form of advertising. The example from the learning materials showed the following result. 20% telescope, 8% binoculars. Is this something you would use in an ad to support a claim where your substantiation is the survey perception study. Look, I, I keep it out of ads, Patricia. It's it's more when you do, um, you, you can legitimately claim, just with a little caveat that says, you know, a representative sample of the British population, um, even at a 10% CI level, that will do. You know, if they ask for the small print, it's more when you present the results in a marketing plan that you need to go into that level. In advertising, just tell them from a representative sample of bird watchers. Philip, I'm lacking market orientation and myopic marketing are probably one and the same. Uh, what would you think are the key reasons that employed leaders focus on the short-term results while neglecting to prepare for the long-term growth of the company? Is this, behaviorally, is this behaviorally linked to the principal agent theory, either they do not care because they do not own the company themselves, or could they not have known any better? What is your view on this? Yeah, it's a good question, Philip. Um, for me, it comes down to the financial rhythm of a company is annual. And that's just the way that it is. And so inevitably, we see the world in 12-month snapshots. And as Peter Drucker said, you have to do things in the short term and the long term, but the short term is not the, is, the long term is not the adding up of short terms. So I think what we do end up doing is we do 12 months and then we do another 12 months and we miss that l the longer term value of market orientation. For me, that's where it goes wrong. 
Alex, I work in FMCG. In the HBR article, it suggests top managers should seek time with their customers and in the market. Yeah. I've seen how COVID and now a tightening of company spend has massively cut back the number of market visits. How could we quantify the risk of not spending time with customers? Do you see this happening? I do. I really, really do, Alex. Uh, internationally, shop-alongs, um, ethnography have all been cut back post-COVID. It's very hard to put a number on the impact, but I tell you now, it's, it's, it's significant. And for those companies that can keep maintaining a link to the market, there's probably more competitive advantage now than ever before. Ian Probert, on the market orientation module, you mentioned the need for marketers to not only obtain customer market insight, but to irrigate it through the organization. Irrigation is a nice analogy. Any practical tips on when or how to do this? Well, we kind of talked about it earlier, Ian. It depends on the company and the field you're irrigating. For me, it's about using the data. I'm always cognizant that if I use LinkedIn for something and I use a chart, it goes bananas because people love to see the actual data. How you use it, though, has to be shaped by the culture, structure, and timing of the company. Never underestimate, though, the impact of just showing data to non-marketers who are like almost like, I didn't know you had any of this. What is this stuff you call data? You know, Amelia, I have a question around understanding the consumer for non-profit uh, organizations and local government orgs. Our product is available to everyone who lives in specific areas of London, and we are commissioned to provide a service that needs to meet everyone's needs. Do you have any thoughts or tips on how we can understand our customers when it's such a broad audience group limited by such a geographical area? Yeah, I mean, the good news for you, Amelia, is you can recruit a sample using a postcode and essentially get a representative sample of that tight geographic area. So, you know, geography is your friend here. You've got a broad audience in a small area. You can actually sample people from that area, either by getting a panel that's geographically located or doing geographically located mall intercept research. You still want to get that representative sample. Nicoletta, is the backward approach also time-wise practical in companies with larger marketing departments? I mean, for you and James, it was doable to discuss together in one day what should come into the report and how it needed to look. But in other companies, you need to involve brand managers, programmatic teams, creative teams. For all of them to agree on what charts they need and negotiate the questions of the survey takes time. And very often, the research has a tight schedule. Um, from your experience, how do you approach the war between fast research and good quality research? Look, they're, they're two very different things, Nicoletta. If I'm going to do that big piece of research in a big or a small company, I'm going to do it right. You're absolutely correct. The more stakeholders, the more time it will take to work backwards. But we would still have spent that time later on with all this duff research still using it in a, in a long-winded way. Time is spent here. And it's saved up here. So it's still worth it. Now, your point about fast versus good research is important, though, because there's other occasions where you don't need that big backward market research thing. Are we overpriced? Um, is the product uh, uh, too elite? You know what I mean? It, it, are customers satisfied? There are quick, fast, dirty techniques where we can just go out and get it. But there's a big difference between the two. And backward research always works for that bigger picture research. Amelia, what do you think about combining focus groups and ethno? For example, doing groups in the places they're comfortable with people they know and comfortable with so it's less alien. Yeah, it makes sense if you've got the time and the budget. I think ethnography normally will do the job on its own. Harry, 
In your article, look at the brand from the customer's perspective. You quote Hyde saying, the important things in life are nothing at all ever to do with retailers and brands. Working for a care company, our service is, and our care assistants are, a hugely important part of our customers' lives. Probably the most important thing for a lot of them. Therefore, how does the above quote link to businesses that provide such personal services compared to ones that sell products or commodities? Granted, it's the people that are making a difference to our customers' lives, but not all care companies are good. And it's the company that brings it all together and sets the standard. Look, you, you may be the exception in that one case, right? Um, and, and, and that's fair enough, Harry, right? I, I mean, you, you aren't selling, you know, toiletries. So to be fair, you may be one of the few exceptions to the otherwise good rule. Adrian, I observed in some B2B SaaS firms that while they tout a customer-first approach, the reality often diverges. Product teams lean towards their own objectives and sales prioritizes numbers. Meanwhile, product marketing seems stuck supporting both without a voice in steering KPIs towards true customer centricity. What practical steps can marketers take to shift this? And how should we engage the C-suite in this conversation? Yeah, I've seen the same thing, Adrian. The first point I would say is, I don't, I don't think it's worth engaging the C-suite. Again, back to my earlier points, give them the data, but don't expect them to be market-oriented. I think the role as the third wheel in this process is to say, okay, you have this great product, you have these great sales projections, let me be the reality check with the market beneath. And, and, and I think that's the role that we play. I don't think anyone else will ever get market-oriented, but I still think we can be involved and, and provide an important perspective. Adrian, again, I absolutely see the value in capturing insights about custom, how customers perceive our brand at every touch point. Some companies have shifted customer success to customer experience, while others task marketing with surveying. Even CMO titles are evolving to include experience. What do you think is the best approach to gather these crucial insights? We'll cover it, Adrian. We're going to talk about touch points in the product module. I have a lot. I have a lot. I, I, there's a lot of things in touch points that I think we need to cover. Let's do it in the product or service module. Generally speaking, I think it's probably you know I would put everything into the touch point model. And often the touch points that we don't think are important are the ones that have the most impact. You will, we'll see that. Stuart. Hey, Mark. Thanks for the course. I, it's been awesome. It's not over yet, mate. My main question, how would you suggest introducing and educating the business on market orientation and investing in market research? Uh, same, same answer, Stuart. It's a common question. doesn't mean it's not a good question. I wouldn't educate them in market orientation. I would, I would use my uh, knowledge of the customer to help input into their processes uh, is the better way. And our final question, which is a monster from Asti, finishing in style. I'm loving the course. I have a gazillion questions floating in my head, but the one that I've been mulling over the most relates to marketing in the charity world. I work for a charity that's 140 years old, based in London, but also operates an outdoor learning center in Sussex and an outdoor learning and leisure center in Bucks. Our primary purpose is to provide opportunities for young people and get them connected with nature and sport. That's cool. And support youth workers and youth organizations. There is a huge difference between the services we offer to customers in London versus what we do in the countryside and how these are funded. Former is fundraising for donations, latter is earned income from B2B sales. The people that work for our charity, like many in the sector, are 100% purpose-driven but the trouble with this is when they're trying to bring in the income is their decisions that should be commercially driven are more often made with emotion. I get this, 
but certainly post-pandemic, I'm finding my ability, going over here because it's on the other screen, because um, it's so big. Um, in my experience, this is not true over the years. I see the behavior of our customers has changed dramatically post-pandemic, where people are demanding more for less. Some caring about our charitable purpose, others not so much. And the penny dropping that is no longer sustainable to operate with feelings. There is a place for it, sure, but it can't be the basis of a sustainable model. Ergo, marketing is more essential now than ever. So after that long-winded context, what are your thoughts on how an old charity <laughs> with diverse services, diverse customers, multiple locations, extremely limited marketing budget um, should approach marketing? Do you think there is a different way that we should take because we are a charity? I'd be good to hear your thoughts on this. Well done, Asti. Um, here's my considered response to that, Asti. Um and I'm not being flippant, do the course, okay? Just keep doing the course. The approach I recommend for you and the charity is the one we're going to go through. It's the right one. And as we go through the weeks ahead, you'll see the places where it will apply directly, I promise you. So rather than try and give you the whole course now, let's just keep trucking, Asti. You're going to see it in how you approach everything. It really will be that good for you. It's perfect for you. Okay. With that, let's move and close down the Q&A. I'll post some follow-ups on the network over the weekend. Certainly be there by Monday. We now move on to segmentation and targeting, crucial modules. Feel the change in temperature as we finish segmentation, which is about the diagnosis of the market, and move to targeting, which is the start of the next phase, which is strategy. Uh, have a great weekend. Keep going. You're in the right place. See you for Q&A and on the MBA network throughout next week.